Welcome to the Mary Shannon Bible Study with speaker, leader, and acclaimed Bible teacher, Mary Shannon. Every week, she'll dive deep into scripture using her unique blend of laugh-out-loud humor and hitting-you-between-the-eyes truth that we all need. So put on your big girl pants, because here we go. As we go through this story tonight, if we even get to the lament, I just want you to know that the lament is coming. And I'm going to talk to you about grief. And I'm going to talk to you too about what do you do with your friend who's in grief? Um, Because I think we can learn a lot in scripture. First Samuel 30 through second Samuel chapter one, basic, well, it's actually 28 through one, but I'm going to show you the narrative in order. So your little cheat sheet shows you on the right side. These are the events that are happening. And that's why on the left side, you'll see that the verses are out of order. I'm telling it to you in chronological order. And some things are happening on the same day, all right? But if you're just reading it, I don't know about you, but if you know, okay, well, they walked. When you're reading the scripture, it's almost like you're in a math word problem. Well, if they, if they, the army traveled one day this direction and then they were rejected and they turned back around and they had to travel two more days and then the, you, you forget what day it is. And so I'm going to show it to you in order. Um, last week, I think we ended, um, was David in enemy territory? Do y'all remember? He was in enemy territory, right? So David had had the second opportunity to kill Saul, and he did not do it. Um, Saul actually looked to be repentant. But when David left, what did he know? That probably is not going to happen, right? And so he made the decision that the only way that he could keep everybody safe, because as long as he was in the land of Israel, basically, and uh, in territory that they held, that he was going to be in danger. So he decided that he was going to take basically all thousand of them into the land of the Philistines. And he goes to Achish. And I think we talked about why, you know, why was it different this time? Because the first time he went in, he was on his own, he was armed, and he was like, it it looked like he was sneaking around as a spy. Now time has gone by and they fully are aware that David is the enemy of Israel. He has been branded a traitor, that he has betrayed the king. And they know this because the king has constantly chased him into the wilderness and has used his entire army to do so. They know about it so much. What have they done at times? When they know that David is being chased by Saul and the army, do you remember what happens? They take that opportunity to come in and attack the land of Israel. And so they're fully aware of it. So when David comes, they truly believe he is absolutely the enemy of Israel. And Achish actually allows them to come into the land of the Philistines. Now David is smart. He truly does not want to live right there in that city with Achish, okay? And so he convinces him to give him a rural area outside of Achish called Ziklag so that he wouldn't be right under the watchful eye of Achish the king. Why? Did you read? Because David is going to use this opportunity to continue to conquer the land for Israel. So even as this almost like a a spy, he comes into the Philistine land and he still goes out with his armies and attacks the enemies 
of Israel. And when he does, he leaves no one alive because he wants no witnesses, right? He's conquering the land. He is doing what God told them to do. You go in, this is your inheritance, and you wipe out the people of the land and you establish the nation of Israel there. And he's doing that. And then he keeps the loot because he uses the loot to convince Achish that he has been fighting against his own people. So he's trying to prove his loyalty and he gives Achish all the loot. So by the time we get to where we're going to be right now, where they actually go to war, Achish is 100% convinced that David is on his team. 100%. And it is the most, I think it is hilarious because if you think about it, Saul is absolutely convinced David is his enemy. Is that true? No. He's proven time and time again. He has no desire to take that king down, to kill him, to be an enemy in any way. But Saul is convinced that David is his enemy, but the fact is that's not true. Well, the flip side is the same. Achish is convinced that David is his loyal subject. Is that true? What we conceive, is it always true? No, because actually he's so convinced that David is his loyal subject, he literally makes David his bodyguard. Okay, that's what he does. Um, so here we go in 28, this is your sheet. This is kind of where it started. So at this point, now the Philistines and the Israelites are about to go to war. Okay. So the Philistines assemble at Apex. That's so remember there are five major cities of the Philistines along the Mediterranean Sea, Gath, Ekron. Okay. All of them along the Mediterranean. They, all the soldiers come together as an army in Apex. And who is with them? Who do you think comes? David and his men. Look here. I think I did. I put it there. I don't know if I did. Um, and so they come, they assemble. David and his men are with him. At the same time, Saul has gathered his forces to war and they're at Mount Gilboa. Okay. So the Philistines are still kind of gathering down by the Mediterranean Sea. Saul and his men are already at Gilboa. Let me paint you the geographic picture, all right? Israel, narrow strip of land, Mediterranean Sea, all right? Over here on the coast is the Via Maris. It is the greatest north-south trade route that runs all the way from Egypt all up through the land of Israel and crosses over um, on, above basically the Sea of Galilee and goes through to the lands of Asia, north-south, okay? But east-west, there are these valleys that run through Israel, and one of them is the Jezreel Valley, and it is the most fertile valley in all the land of Israel. The Via Maris runs right through that valley, okay? And on either side of that valley, you have these two mountains or large hills, and the Israelites are on one, okay? They're on Mount Gilboa. And then across the valley from them is where eventually the Philistines are going to be, okay? So on your, on your sheet here, you see that the Israelites, the Philistines are gathering. They're on the march to get to Jezreel. The Israelites are already on Gilboa. And actually it says that they camped not only up on the mountain, but down in the Jezreel Valley, which by the way, that is also called the spring of Goliath because that's where they believe that encounter happened as well. 
All right. It was also the scene of Gideon that spring where they had to drink and God said, okay, well, those that drink like this will stay and those that drink like that will go. And he ended up with 300 men. All of these stories. Can you imagine living in that land? Everywhere you are, there is a story that happened there. We, you cannot imagine. You can't go to that land and dig anywhere that you do not find a civilization and a story. History is all through the land of Israel. And so on the first day, here comes the movement. Day one, they start to march from Apec to go to a place called Shunem. And at that point, David is with them, David and his men. What do you think the problem becomes? David has convinced Achish that he's loyal. But Achish is not the only one there. All of the Philistine army has come together. All of the commanders. And who do they see? David and his men. Are they so sure? Actually, they're like, uh, yeah, no, this is a dumb idea. And let me tell you why. You got your Bibles? Turn to 1 Samuel 14, 21 and read that. You know the story, okay? Saul has been disobedient. His army is melting away. He did not wait on Samuel and his army is deserting left and right. And he goes to camp. He won't engage in the battle. He's sitting back and all of a sudden, Jonathan decides to climb down through the crevasse up the other side, and Jonathan and his armor bearer start a battle with the Philistines. And when they start that battle, right, and they start to win, what does that say happen? So when Jonathan started to beat the Philistines and the Israelites who had become traitors, who had gone to the other side, when they saw that, their, that Israel was winning, what did they decide to do? They decided to come back to their nation and they decided to fight against the Philistines. So they're dressed like Philistines. Okay, they're out to war. They, they've gone to the other side. They've dressed up like Philistines. They come out to fight with the Philistines. When Israelites start to win, they flip sides, but they look like a Philistine. And so now they're fighting each other. The Philistines became so confused. They didn't even know who their enemy was. And in all of this, Finally, Saul then joins his son and they kick butt and take names. Who remembers this? The commanders. They're like, uh, yeah, <coughs> we've fallen in this trap before. We're not doing that again. Don't you wish our lives were like that? Oh, amen, sister. Okay. But they're like, we're not doing that again. You may trust David. You may think 100% there is no way he's going to turn on us, but I'm telling you right now, we're not convinced because if we go to fight against Saul and his best friend, Jonathan, and we fight against the land of Israel, there is no way David and his men are going to turn on us. There is no way he's marching with us. And so what does it say happen? They turn back. Okay, so now day two, they have marched a whole day with the Philistines and now they said no way. So David then and all of his men are sent home. They start to march back to their house. Okay, two days later now, so the Philistines march one day, they turn David back, he starts heading. Now two days later after marching, they end up in the Jezreel Valley at Shunem. Are you there with me? It says day four on your sheet. 
So the Philistines come to Shunem. Philistines set up camp. And then, remember, Saul is already at Gilboa across the valley. Now all the Philistines are coming in across the valley where he can see them. And what happens? He freaks. And so would you. Here you are watching these massive Philistines with their iron chariots and their archers that are known and everything, and they are coming in in full force, and he is absolutely panicked when he sees them. At this point, it says that Saul tries to receive guidance from the Lord. He seeks the Lord. Okay, well, what's the problem? Well, First off, he seeks the Lord and it says that he gets no answer personally. Like he gets no personal revelation. He gets no dream, he, nothing. So he has no answer for his fear. And if you're in that much fear, it, it would have to be clear cut. Answer, like you've got all this fear going on. Have you ever prayed in the middle of fear? It's very hard to discern. Okay. So he's got that going on. Well, what? What had God actually given kings and, and leaders to use to get a word from him? Do you remember me teaching you that? The Urim and the Thummim, okay? And so why does he not have it? Because he stinking killed all the priests, okay? So he killed all the priests, all 85 priests and their families. And the only one that escaped, Abiathar, is with who? David. So he does not have the opportunity to ask God the yes or no answers, right? What would be the third way in Old Testament that you would receive a word from the Lord? He, he already tried dreams. He got no dreams. He had no Urim, no Thummim. Who are, who are the people that usually step up in the Old Testament and say, thus saith the Lord? Prophets. What's the problem there? <laughs> well, Samuel, right? He's been on the outs. He was on the outs with Samuel. And Samuel was the teacher, the leader, the instructor to the prophets. And so the prophets are aware that Saul's kingdom has been what? Rejected. He has no avenue, right, open to him to speak to God. So what does he do? He tries every Yahwehistic avenue. And so when he doesn't get the answer he wants, he goes a different direction. Did you read it? Okay. He goes to a medium. Okay. That's what he does. Um, it's really interesting because he has to travel. He goes and consults this medium. He travels for six miles, by the way. I got to see where I am in my notes. Um, yeah. He travels six miles. Two miles he has to travel to the other side of the Philistines. So he goes at dark and it says he disguises himself. He does that for two reasons, all right? He needs to go in the dark and in a disguise because he's gonna, if he gets spotted by a Philistine, how, it's about wartime. How's that gonna work? Okay, no. And what's gonna happen when he gets to this medium if she thinks it is Saul and his men? Did you read this at all? It had said earlier in verse three, that when Samuel was alive and Saul was running things, that they literally wiped out all the divination in the land. Anybody who was into divination or sorcery, any medium, any witchcraft, 
They had made it illegal and they had wiped it out. But isn't it interesting that when he needs one, the people around him know exactly where one is still? And so he has to go as a disguise because if he went as the king, what do you think she would think? This is a setup. I'm about to get killed, which by the way, she has a feeling about that anyway, if you read the story. All right, so when he gets there, he asked this woman, he said, I want you to consult a spirit and to cause the one whom I say to you to come up to me. At first, she refuses because she thinks it's a trap. Listen, <laughs> I don't know about her uh, spiritualist gifts, but she does have a little discernment. Okay, she can feel something's funky. It's a time of war. She, she can probably read through this disguise. Remember, he doesn't have on his royal garments, but something is awry and she can feel it, that it's not right. And she is worried that he is laying a trap. And then this is a piece of work. He, Saul says, he says to her, he swears by the Lord that she will not be punished. Are you getting that? He promises her using God's name that the Lord will not punish. Who does Saul think he is? Are you kidding me? He has lost his mind. He has hardened his heart against the message and against humbling himself before the Lord that y'all, he literally thinks he can speak for God. That he is coming in and saying, listen, I, I know that this is wrong, but in this instance, I can tell you that it's okay. God won't punish you if you just give me what I need. That He's out of his mind, right? And so she does. So she does her thing and she calls up. He wants her to call up Samuel. Now, the question is, is this Samuel? Uh, and you may not even be interested in this stuff, but if you read, there's all kinds of conflicting things, okay? Is this possible? Was it demonic? Was it an angel? Uh, was it Samuel? And I'm just going to suggest to you, uh, it's Samuel, okay? And here's four reasons why I believe it is Samuel, all right? Number one, the scripture says it is Samuel, okay? Like Samuel came up. Number two, I think it's pretty interesting that she freaks out. If you read this at all, the medium herself freaks out when this happens, which makes me question if she's ever truly experienced anything like this ever before, right? And she's, she's pretty amazed that some, like she sees what's happening and can't believe it herself, and she's freaked out. Number three, it's almost as if the conversations that they had had in the past just kept going. It just continued. It was the same conversation, which brings me to number four, his message never what? Changed. Samuel's message never changed. I brought, and what was the message? Your kingdom has been rejected. And now it's even more intense because he tells him, you will die and so will your sons. Okay, and we're going to come back to that in just a second. But people, you know, will talk about the fact of, you know, calling people back from the dead. I'm not going to get into all of that, but I will say this. You know, people question that because can the people in heaven 
see us, right? Is it possible to bring them back, to cross over, or can they see us, or all of that stuff? And I will tell you just a couple of things. Number one, there is no stress, no crying, no grieving, no any of that in heaven, okay? So if they can see us, I like to believe it is more like the Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. It's one of my favorite verses. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. So here you have this idea in Hebrews 12, 2, that we are in an arena and the stands are absolutely full. And really and truly, if you want to know some of them, you can look at the ones who made it to the Hall of Fame because they're in chapter 11. But those aren't the only ones. The stands are full of people, of faithful servants of the Lord that have come through and they're in the stands. And it says that they are a cloud of witnesses. That word cloud, in the Hebrew, there are two kinds of clouds. One is that little white cloud that is just beautiful. You just say, oh, isn't that a pretty cloud? And the other one is a cloud that, and that's why in the scripture it says surrounded by, that, that word literally means to encircle and to embrace. So it is like this heavy cloud that comes down and it has absolutely encircled and embraced us all around. Can't you just see them? So they're all around, they're encircling us. And here's the thing, the way this makes sense to me is that they are now like God. They see the full story. They see it from beginning to end. They know our complete story. They know what we were created to do. They know what God has made us capable of. They know how it ends up and, and they've been through it, but now they understand it. Now they see it clearly, not as shaded glass. They see the real thing. And they're like, Shannon, I know. Stay in it. Stay in it. Keep going. I know. I know. I know. I gave my wife up twice. I'm an idiot. I get it. I know. Can't you just hear Abraham? I said she was my sister twice. Like I did this twice. I know. But listen, I know what he created you to do. I know what he put in you and I know how he's going to use you. Keep going, girl. Throw off anything that hinders. If anything's holding you back, let it go. And any sin, go. You've got this. So do I believe that we have a cheering section that somehow is there and aware? Yes. Do I believe that we have people up there that are mourning over our mistakes, that are seeing that we are drawing people back to the... No, I do not. I believe this is one very unique time in scripture that God allows Samuel to return to have the same message. But here's what I think is interesting. How stubborn are we as human beings? Seriously, I told you last time, I would love to have the Urim and Thummim. Should I do this, Lord? Yes or no? Bam. Should I do this, Lord? Yes or no? Bam. And we think if we got a yes or no answer, we would do it. And I'm challenging you on that because this man had someone raise up from the stinking dead to tell him what? What he had already heard and refused to do it. And I'm telling you, 
it makes me very sad because you want to say to Saul, buddy, give it up. Let it go. Quit worrying about failure. It's, you can't change the situation. He'll walk you through it. Come on, get through this. He, he would not. He would not release the grip. He would not bow the knee. He wouldn't accept forgiveness. He wouldn't own what he did. I mean, there's so much in, that, in this lesson, I believe. When, uh, when he finally gets the message, what happens? Did I, y'all don't do your homework. You're so bad. I didn't I tell y'all to read about this last week. Some of you did. What happens when he gets the message that he's going to die and his uh, sons? He passes out, y'all. He like just falls out on the ground. I believe there's some reasons for that. Number one, I, I think he is, you know, absolutely shocked. This is a pretty traumatic event. Another thing we find out is that he has not eaten which doesn't shock me because he's doing his same stupid stuff. Do you remember what he did in wartime before? He called for a fast and how dumb that was. And Jonathan nearly died because of it because he ate the honey. So here again, he's in war and he's fasting. And I'm going to tell you, that's not a good idea, right? When you're in a battle, unless you're like me and when you're anxious and you're hurting, I can't eat. And then when you do that, you know, when your stomach grumbles, then you feel even more nervous than before. And you don't know, well, am I just hungry? Am I having a nervous breakdown? Right? So, but the whole point is you're weak. He was weak. And how far did he have to hike on an empty stomach? You just try hiking six miles. I do it on a daily basis. I can run it. And right now, when you don't eat and you're not strong, I'm telling you, he is absolutely worn out. He's been fasting. He is stressed. And he just hits the ground. And then you have this medium trying to pick up the king of Israel and like get him set back up. And you kind of have her ministering to him. And then you have her making him this banquet. Like, dude, I, I know you're fasting, but do you understand what he's doing? He's still walking through these religious things when nothing has changed in him. Nothing. And she's like, I know that you're like fasting, but you need to eat. You can't make it. All of this is going on at the same time as this next story. He returns to Gilboa at night. At this same time that I've been telling you this story, David gets back to Ziklag. Do you know what happened? You can look at your cheat sheet. He gets back. And when he gets back, Ziklag has been destroyed by the Amalekites. Now, why should that make us mad? Should the Amalekites even exist? No. Who should have destroyed them all? Saul. But he did not. Do you remember? That's why his kingdom was rejected. So here you now have this king, David, who has been gone. He gets back and Ziklag has been destroyed, burned, everything taken, and their families. And so they get back, and when they see that, it describes it and says that they weeped so hard they had no more tears, that they are grieving. Now remember, they have marched a day, been rejected, marched two days home. After three days of marching, they come back, 
and their loved ones are gone and they cry so hard there are no more tears and then they do something really interesting. They are so mad at David they consider stoning him. Now I want you to think of all they've been through. Okay? And they're like, man, we have been with you through thick and thin. We have been everywhere. We have hidden our families. We have done everything. We have hidden in caves. We have been your men. You had two opportunities to kill this fool. And you wouldn't do it. And we followed you into enemy territory. And now our families have been put at risk. And now they're gone. We thought you were the next king of Israel. Where is your God? Like, what is going on? Why have we put our families in this situation? Why? Listen, when there's grieving a lot of times there and hurt, there's a lot of what? Anger and blame. And you can't judge people in the middle of this situation because they are hurting and they are grieving. And with grief comes mad and blame. And how dare you do this to me? And I can't believe you did this. And God, why did you take this person? And why have you, do you understand? That's the situation that they're in. And they're grieving their guts out. And while Saul, the king of Israel, is asking a medium, David inquires of God. And why does he have an avenue? Because he has a biathar. And he calls that priest forward and he asks God, should we go? Are, are they alive? Like, should we go fight? Is, is there still hope? And God says what? Yes. They mount up. Now I want you to think how tired they are. They have literally walked all day, every day, one day, two days back, they've discovered this and they have grieved their guts out. Can I tell you how tiring that is? Can I get a witness? You're exhausted. You're so exhausted and then you can't even go to sleep because you can't turn your stupid mind off. But you're exhausted. And they have to mount up and travel again to go chase down the Amalekites. As they do that, Along the way, some of the men can't keep going. They're exhausted, but some of them do. And when they get there, I'm telling you what, they have a raid on the Amalekites. They catch up to them at nighttime and they wipe them out. Ironically, this is all going on at the same time. And, it, you know, it's really interesting. Hold on, I want to show you the irony. Um, so on day five, he fights them all day long. He recovers the plunder and the family. Okay? And, by the way, some of his men were very aggravated that he shared the plunder with the guys that stayed behind. And you know what David said? Uh-uh. We're not going there. We are a team. We are the body. We all have different abilities. We're not going to judge who deserves blessing and who does not. This victory is a full-on blessing to us that needs to be shared with all. We're not going to do that. God saved our lives, and it doesn't matter if you were a part of the fight or if you were with the baggage. We are all part of the team, and David, David still does that. So he fights the Amalekites. At the same time he is fighting the Amalekites... Saul goes to war with the Philistines. So look at your day five. 
Okay? So while he's fighting and he is taking all the plunder, the Philistines rout Israel and they go to war with Israel. Let me tell you all the irony in this. On the one hand, David was here fulfilling the mandate of the Torah regarding the Amalekites and receiving a blessing because God had said to do what to the Amalekites? Wipe them out. David wiped them out so bad in this instance. Remember, he's the anointed king to come. The one that is crowned did not do it. The coming king in this situation was provided an opportunity to wipe out the Amalekites. He did so completely that you do not hear of them again until King Hezekiah during the divided kingdom, if you know your Bible. Okay, so that it's really ironic that he did that. Um, on the other hand, at the very moment David was enjoying success and blessing, Saul was experiencing the full force of the curse. And he lost his whole family and possessions. So you have the opposites going on. David seeking the Lord, David going to fight against the enemy of the Lord, wiping them out and getting the full blessing of his family back. On the other side, you see Saul going to war against the Philistines, right, without the anointing, and you see he loses and he loses his family because not only does he die, who also dies with him? His sons. Um, let's see. At the end of the war, Saul and his sons are dead. David wipes out the Amalekites. Saul is laying dead. And then we get to the sad part on day six, which breaks my heart. Oh, this breaks my heart too. I got to find the part about the Amalekites. Oh, here you go. No, that's coming later. Day six. So it says Philistines cut off Saul's head, strip him of his armor. Okay, has anybody seen war movies or have any of y'all watched um, like Outlander? Those kinds of movies? Okay, what happens after a brutal battle, either that night or the next day? What's the typical thing that happens? The winning side does what? They go through all of the dead bodies. They literally, they send people and they go through. And if you are not dead, you're going to be dead right? So they kill all the wounded. This is not in the days where we take the wounded and we have all these rules. No, it was a slaughter. So they would make sure you were dead and then they plundered. So they would take all the weapons, anything of worth, because number one, they don't want your nation to have it. They need it. And so they take it all. It was rare that you would ever find the king left on the battlefield. Because if you did, and especially these people, uh, they would do all have all kinds of sport with the king, especially if he weren't dead. They were known to uh, mutilate you, cut off your genitals, cut off your head, do all kinds. They would make sport of you. And so if your king fell, there were people who would do what? They would take him away. They would get him off. So the fact that he was still laying there, that all... I, it was a brutal slaughter. So when they came back, the story is, right, Saul had been brutally wounded by an arrow to his gut, and he was not dead. So instead, he asked his armor bearer to kill him. He didn't, and so Saul fell on his spear or his sword, right? You're going to have a little bit of con conflict in the story because later on when David finds out this Amalekite 
messenger comes and tells him, he says that he actually put Saul out of his misery. So we're going to look at that later. But he falls on his sword because it says that the Philistines were coming. He saw them coming. He knew what they would do. And so he was trying to die so that he would not be made a sport. Well, guess what? He did die. But when they found him on the battlefield and his sons, what did they do to him? They cut his head off, stripped his body, and they took his body to a place called Bet Shean, which if you were in Israel with me, we were there. And uh, they nailed the naked bodies to Bet Shean, to the walls of Bet Shean for everybody to see. This battle was so brutal, so complete, that the cities of Israel, all the towns, when they heard about how bad Israel fell, they packed their bags and they fleed. When they did, the Philistines came in and literally just moved right into their houses, moved right into the city and took over that territory. The sweetest part to me, if you look on your little cheat sheet, okay, is where it says, I, I put here for you, Philistines fasten all of Saul's family's body to Bet Shean, okay? And then in chapter 31, we find out that there is a group of Israelites, right? Jabesh Gilead, the people of Jabesh Gilead, they come in and sneak in at night through all the Philistines and they remove the bodies from the wall and they take them back to Jabesh and they burn the flesh and they bury the bones in ossuary, okay? Why is this sweet? See, this, the, this is the good stuff, y'all. These are the nuggets. This is why I love to teach you the Bible because you would read that and you would think that doesn't mean not one hill of beans to me. It should I have taught you something about Jabesh Gilead. You should know those people. Does anything ring a bell? No? Nothing? So what if I taught, what if I reminded you about young Saul when he became king and his first battle? Does that ring a bell? His very first battle was when he was coming out of the field, someone came to him and everybody was crying in town. Do you remember this? He's like, why are y'all crying? This half-hour version. Why are y'all crying? Oh, the people of Jabesh Gilead are in such trouble. The Ammonites have surrounded them. And they've tried to give up, but the Ammonite king won't let them give up unless they get their right eyes gouged out. Does that sound familiar? Right? So word gets out, Saul hears it, and he's like, uh-uh. And it says he was filled with zeal, and he cut the cattle into pieces. And he sent the cattle all over the nation. He said, y'all better show up to defend your brother or your cattle are all going to look like these pieces right here. And do you remember when I taught you that? How I told you that how did he know to do that? Like we learn stories of our people. We get ideas. Well, guess what? In that very place, back in the days of the judges, right? There was a Levi whose concubine had been raped and murdered by his own brethren, and nobody was doing anything about it. So what did he do? He took her dead body, cut it into pieces. Y'all remember this, don't you? And sent it throughout the entire nation and said, are we going to stand for this? And so all of Israel came together and they went and fought against the tribe of Benjamin. And I told you, do you remember the only people in Israel who did not show up to help? Jabesh Gilead. 
That's in the book of Judges. Now, at the beginning of 1 Samuel, when Saul comes in, they're the ones that need help. And so Saul makes sure that the nation comes in to help them. And now at the end of his life, who remembers him? The people of Jabesh Gilead. And they come in. And I'm sorry, but I just think that's the sweetness of God even in the end. He uses this group of people to come in and take down the body of Saul and to treat him with the highest respect and to bury his bones. And to me, even with all that you have to say about Saul, in the end, I'm telling you, the goodness of God and the graciousness of God for a people to treat him with such love and respect. Do you see how all this comes together? Don't you want, am I the only dork that wants to know all this stuff? Yeah? And so you can see it like, do you understand? Like you see a circle there that here they didn't join in to help. But yet when they needed help, someone did and they learned. And so now who needed help? They went and got the bodies down. They risked their lives. The ones, I mean, it's just beautiful. Do you ever look back at life and see things coming around like full circle? That's what, that's what these stories are. It's amazing. And so then David and his men finally get back to Ziklag. They need a break, dude. They get back. They get some rest for two days. They get some food. They're hugging on their kids. They're hugging on their wives. They're doing all that. David has all the plunder, and he starts sending gifts to the land of Judah. Why? Where do you think he wants to go? Home. He wants out of there. Okay, and then comes the messenger. Look at day nine. And I know this is a lot, and I'm telling it to you really fast, but now you have the sheet. Go back this week and spend some time. Like, read through this. See if I got it wrong, right? Day nine, all of a sudden, here comes a stranger. He shows up, and he has the outward appearance of grief. What, what do you think that means? He's ripped his clothes. He has everything appearing like he's grieving. He probably has ash on his head, right? And he comes to David, and this is what he says. The entire Israelite army is fleeing from battle with many injured and dead. Worst of all, King Saul and his sons are dead. Well, David didn't just take it at that. He wants to know the details. And so he gets four very important details from this man. Number one, the guy says, here's foremost, I saw it with my own eyes. I'm not just a messenger that heard it. I was there, David. I saw him on his sword. And so David's like, okay, this is a firsthand account. And number two, with it, he had some detail. The reason is, is that the chariots, the army of Philistines were almost upon him. I was there. I saw it. I know the situation. He's on his sword. They're almost to him. And then he says, basically, that... I had a private conversation with him. He asked me to kill him. He asked me to put him out of his misery. And he had all of the details. And I'm going to tell you what else. He had proof. If you read it, he had Saul's crown and he had his bracelets. So in every sense of the word, David can believe that Saul is what? Is dead. That this was the scene. This is how he got it. But here's the thing that's interesting. 
Well, first off, let me tell you some ironic things. Saul had lost his kingship because he had failed to kill an Amalekite king. Do you remember that? Who did he fail to kill? Agag. Okay. He failed to kill an Amalekite king. Now an Amalekite that Saul had failed to eliminate was going to kill the king of Israel. Isn't that interesting? Saul had been ordered to kill the Amalekites and now he was ordering an Amalekite to kill him. This is crazy, right? There are two different accounts if you look. 1 Samuel 31 uh, talks about Saul falling on his sword and dying. In 2 Samuel, it says that the Amalekite did it, okay? The Amalekite seems to have been there, right? I don't know what to tell you about that. But I will tell you this, don't feel sorry for this Amalekite because I do not believe in any way he was some good guy coming. I think this Amalekite was that squirrely guy we see in the war movies that he saw an opportunity that, oh my word, I can use this situation right here if I have this crown and these bracelets and I was of help to honor this king that I now can go in and get into the good graces of David and I can get in there because the Amalekites were the enemy of Israel. Do you remember Doeg? Do you remember his name? The one that was there when David got help from the priests and he saw it. And then later on, he was with Saul and he said, oh, I was there. Those priests helped him. They gave him food and not just food. They gave him a lot. They, he used the word as if they were equipping an army, provisions. Oh, and they gave him the sword of Goliath and they asked God for guidance for David. He really worked it, right? Because in that situation, in a time of arguing and fighting and war, you were always trying to find that place of power. And he worked his way in there and eventually Saul used him to go kill all the priests. This is that same kind of guy. This Amalekite, because you can feel sorry for him in the story when you read it. Like he came and told David all this and then David just had a fit and killed him, right? No, he is an Amalekite. He was the enemy. He was working his way in. And I believe he would have been to the, he, if we were be watching that movie, we'd be like, uh-uh. Don't you believe him for one second? We know. We see the background. We saw it. You don't see it. This is what he is. Do not trust him. And so he puts him to death. And then we come to the part where I studied this week. Um, David's grief. His absolute grief over the loss of everything, to be honest. I think it poured out. I think he grieved Saul. I think he grieved Jonathan. I think he grieved the people in the nation. We see an outward grief. It's called, uh, the Hebrew word is kriya. And it means that is the word for tearing when he rips his garment. It refers to the act of tearing one's clothes or cutting a black ribbon worn on one's clothes. The rending is a striking expression of grief and anger at the loss of a loved one. It's always done standing, signifying strength at the time of grief. I literally think 
when he heard that message, it all fell on him. He grieved everything. He ripped his clothes. He let it rip. And I don't know about you, but we're going to talk about grief. Grief is intense. We're going to look at his lament and we're going to analyze it a little bit. I don't think for one minute we grieve simply in a lament. I think we grieve over time. I think as a people we avoid grief because to be honest, sometimes it's overwhelming. Sometimes we realize that the world does not stop for us to grieve, that when we're grieving, we still have to go to work. And so in order to survive, we avoid it. We don't want to see triggers that make us grieve. We avoid people. We avoid places. We avoid all kinds of stuff because it triggers that grief. I think sometimes it takes a while for us to truly completely know what all we're grieving. We're going to see him work through that. I can tell you that even in my season of pain right now, I know I'm not just grieving what I'm grieving. I'm grieving so much more that I haven't grieved. I don't know if you can understand that, but I will give you a crazy example of it. So in the middle of just brokenhearted crying and hiking and other stuff coming out while I'm doing that in the middle of being broken about other things, my mom calls me in the middle of this one day and says, uh, hey, Shannon, have you seen the paper? And um, I said, no. And she goes, well, there's an article in the paper, uh, Richard Aubert, who's this analyst for uh, high school football, has written an article about if he could, basically his fantasy football team of the decade. And she said, and Zach's in it. And I go, okay. And so, I mean, I did not expect this, right? But I looked at the article and I'm reading that he would have picked Zach for this you know, team of the decade. And I was reading about Zach, and then there was a line in it that said, uh, if we were picking the greatest athlete of the decade, Zach Hoffpower would be in the conversation. You would think that I would think that was great. I would be, oh, that's my kid. Oh. I read it, and now keep in mind, I'm already broken about other things. I started sobbing so hard, I cannot even begin to tell you. And I called him on the phone and I said, Zachary, I am so sorry you did not make it. I am so sorry your dreams did not come true. I am so sorry that you have all of this talent and it just didn't work out. Like you just gave it your, I'm so sorry you have freaking Lyme disease. I hate it. I'm so sorry that you've been through so much pain. I'm so sorry. I mean, I he's like, Mom, Mom. And I'm like, I'm, he goes, why are you crying about that now? And I go, because, Zachary, there are times all through that I'm realizing that as that mom or as that strong force or whatever, that you're like, okay, okay, you're going to be fine. This did not work out. It's good. You know what? That's it. That's not who you are. That's not your identity. That's not this. You'll be fine. You're good. Okay, what are we going to do next? Okay, let's, let's move on. And, and I'm grieving other things, but I did, we don't take the time. And then all of a sudden, you hit this moment where 
you're hiking and you're enraged about something. Or you hit a moment and you're just sobbing about some hurt that you did not take time for. Or now something new has happened to literally break your heart and you're realizing, oh my gosh, Shannon, look at your, what are you doing? And it's just, it takes time. And we're going to look at that because I think it is a process. And I will tell you one of the greatest things, we're also going to talk about what do you do with a friend who's grieving? If you read Lamentations, how many of you have ever read it? <laughs> I, know, I don't want to read it either, but I have. Lamentations is about Israel and she's personified as a woman and she's crying out in pain. Narrator is telling her story. And the whole time, we're going to look at it, the whole time, she is saying, look at me, God. Look at me. Look at my pain. Look at my pain. Do you see it? Hear me. Do you see my pain? And at one point in chapter 2 and 13, the narrator, all this time he's just been telling the story of her pain, of what she's saying. He finally gets to a place in chapter 2, verse 13, where he too can't ignore it. And he turns and speaks to her. And he says, oh, virgin girl, your pain is as deep as the sea. I'm going to tell you, you can go back through time. Stories like Leah. She named her firstborn son Reuben, right? Now he will love me. Why? Because he sees me. I am telling you the greatest thing in grief is to be seen. You just need someone to see you to acknowledge it, to be there. And we're going to look about what, what to do with that. Um, and it's amazing how we'll be in times of life and you walk through the Bible, like, really, I'm going to teach you all about grief right now, you know? And it, we all go through it. We all go through it. And the biggest thing is to acknowledge it and to sit there. Don't try to fix it. You can't get around it. You cannot avoid it. You have to what? You got to go through it. And my biggest thing in pain is, my gosh, Lord, please teach me through it. Like, I don't, I'm so tired of asking, why is this happening to me? I need to ask, why is this happening for me? What is it that I need to learn? And you know what? I also need to give myself a break, and so do you. Because my mom says, girl, You've been through a lot. Cry if you want to cry. Feel it. Sit in it. Be there. And I don't want to feel it. I don't know about y'all. But we have to do that. We can't detach ourselves from our feelings and just keep going. I mean, we have to. I have to teach y'all on Tuesday mornings and Tuesday nights and Wednesday mornings. And to be honest, I don't want to sometimes. But I also don't want to act and fake it. This is what it is. We're in the tunnel together. Pain hits us all. And so we're going to get through it. We're going to look at his lament. It's beautiful. But any questions about what I taught you? I mean, I taught you about all kinds of war, right? All kinds of war. How many of you are in a war? How many feel like you're in a battle right now? Yeah. No battles. Everything's so good. Can I have y'all's life? <laughs> We're all good? <laughs> I challenge you to read through his lament. See if you can pick out um, 
repetitive phrases, why they're there. See if you can pick out his trajectory, where he's going. Look at Lamentations. Look at, look at Rachel, uh, Rachel and Leah. There's a cycle of pain there that you'll see. Like, read those stories together. See what is common about that kind of stuff. It all works together, all right? What I want you to understand about the Bible, don't read the Bible like it's just a book of moral code, of right or wrong. These are testimonies and stories that have been given to us, ancient stories for us to understand that these are people going through hard times that yes, they grow over time and they learn, but God is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And to be honest, mankind is too. Don't forget that. We're all in this together, all right? And so the reason we have the answer is we have the ability to tell people, guess what? There is someone that is going to walk through this with you. He has forgiven you. There is complete love. Will you accept it? And will you enter into a relationship with him? Because hope comes in the end, but he's going to walk through you. It's not say a prayer, check a box, and now you're in our group. That It's never been that. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for tonight. I thank you for your word. God, I thank you honestly that I do get to teach because as I hear myself teach, I'm reminded that you are absolutely in control. Lord, in the middle of all these chess moves that I've just described, you're in charge of it all. You are operating the entire time. And so, God, I have to believe that you're still doing that now, that you are in charge, you're good, you love me, and that I can release things to you. And so when we have this time of fear, we don't just release it. We don't just have a dumbbell above our head and release it so it crashes down on our head. We hand it over to you. We hand our anxiety, our worry, our fears. We literally take them and put them in your hands for a while. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would continue to teach us as we look how David has been through the ringer. Yes, Lord, he was that young shepherd in the field that had a heart that was soft and a heart towards you. But Lord, he is learning to be a king through pain. And so now, Lord, we're going to watch him ascend to that throne. And when we do, we're going to watch him be the same kind of human we all are, imperfect. But he has this beauty of relationship with you, that he holds your hand through the tunnel and he is quick to repent. He seeks to please you. He desires to do what you would have him to do. There's the key. Lord, we love you so much. Walk with us through this week as our friend, as our counselor, as our God. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Mary Shannon Bible Study. Be sure to subscribe. Shannon also hosts the hilarious and heartfelt Mary Shannon's Table podcast, where along with friends, they chat about life, faith, and leadership. Check out the show now and subscribe. If you want to connect with Mary Shannon, go to Instagram at It's Mary Shannon or visit itsmaryshannon.com.